also It's a time where we have to listen to the Parsha of Amalek, uh, a mitzvah actually, we should all be in shul, try and listen to the Parsha. And uh, there's a lot, a lot in the Shabbos. So what I want to do today is I want to start with something just in Parsha's Vayikra, give a little bit of an overview. Then go to discuss a little bit the extra special Parsha we read this week of Zachor, about Amalek, and then come back to and connect it with the fact that it's the Shabbos before Purim. So it's partially like a Purim shir, but I'm going to connect it to the Parsha as well. So I'm just going to uh, share a screen here. Give me one second. There we are. Okay. So this week's Parsha is Vayikra, and it's it's introduces the concept of karbonus, of sacrifices. The parasha itself goes through many, many different types of karbonus, individual karbonus, communal karbonus, and so on and so forth. But it begins with an introductory sort of paragraph, which we are familiar with, but we can just learn through it now a little bit. Have a look at number one. It says, Yikra el Moshe, and he called to Moshe. It doesn't even say, who called to Moshe? We understand, obviously, it's Hashem that called to Moshe. By Dabir Hashem Eilav, and Hashem spoke to him, Oil Moyed Lamer, from the tent of meeting, meaning from the Mishkan. We know the voice of Hashem came from on top of the ark, top of the Aaron Kodesh. The Oil Moyed Lamer saying, What did Hashem say? Now, note, of course, if you look at the Vayikra, I put it there in the handout as well. The Aleph of the word Vayikra is small, it's called an Aleph Zeira. It's one of the times in the Torah where the Aleph is small. It doesn't say who called Moshe. It's Hashem. If you have a look, before we go to the next passage, have a look at number two. Rashi says, Vayikro el Moshe, he called Moshe. Says Rashi, Lechol Dibrois, Lechol Amirois. Every time Hashem would introduce a new conversation, so to speak, with Moshe Rabbeinu. And a new command, Lechol Tzivuyim, Kodmo Kriya. It would always be preceded by Hashem calling out to Moshe, Loshon Chiba, and it's an expression of love. It's an expression of ex- connection between Hashem and Moshe Rabbeinu, calling him. Because as Rashi explains later, we do not find this when Hashem speaks to people who aren't so good. For example, the typical famous example is Bilam. When Hashem spoke to Bilam, because Bilam was in fact a prophet, and Hashem did speak to him. But when Hashem spoke to him, it doesn't say Vayikra, it says Vayikor. He chanced upon him. He happened to speak to him. Almost like, by the way. But when Hashem speaks to, Bil- uh, to, to Moshe Rabbeinu, it's Vayikra el Moshe. Not Vayikar, but Vayikra. He called him, he specially called him as a sign of endearment and a connection of preciousness. Okay. What did he say to him? Let's have a look. Go back to number one, Pasuk Beis, the second Pasuk. Tabir Rabbeinu Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, Ve'amarto Aleim, and say to them, Odom ki yakriv mikem korban Hashem. A person, a man who, f- who will bring from within you a korban to Hashem. Min ha-behema, min ha-bokar, or min ha From animals, from cattle, or from sheep. Takrivu es korbanchem, you shall bring your sacrifices. Later on in the parasha, the, the, the Torah talks about sacrifices from birds, sacrifices of flour, all different types of korbanas. This is a very important passage. We've talked about it in other years. I'm not going to go into detail now, but it also represents the idea of a carbon. The idea of a carbon is not just bringing an animal on the altar, but in fact, the idea of a carbon is a, sum, a symbol 
And when one brings a carbon, one has to experience something of offering up. We need to bring up our own animal. We all have an animal. We have a nefesh abamis, an animal soul. We have animal instincts. We have animal drives which are not directed in the, in, the, in the direction of the service of Hashem. We need to bring them, we need to sacrifice them, which means we need to give up a little bit. The drives, we have to channel it. We have to train a little bit and bring it closer to Hashem as the word korban also comes from the word kiruv, to be close. This is why the Pasuk, in the grammar of the Pasuk, it says, the structure of the Pasuk, it doesn't say, Odom Mikem, a man amongst you who will bring a korban, but it says, Odom ki yakriv Mikem, a man who will bring from you korban Hashem, meaning in other words, the korban is from you. You are the korban. Right? Obviously, the Kabbalists involve a physical animal as well, and it has to do with many other insights of the elevation of the physical world. Just to go on to that for a moment, because we know that every time a carbon was brought, there was a representation of all four components of the world. The world is made up of doimem, the inanimate, tomeh, things that grow, chai, the animal kingdom, and medaber, the person. Every carbon had the person bringing the carbon, and he, was, he or she became part of the carbon. Every carbon had to have salt, as this week's parasha tells us later, we, we must always have salt, which is one of the reasons why we have salt on the table when we eat, because our, we are taught that our table is like an altar, our table is like a mizbech, and there was always salt on the mizbech. And then there was always like a flower offering or a wine pouring. And that obviously comes from the world of tzomeach, comes from the world of vegetation and growth. So that's why it says, Adam Mikem, you have to bring the carbon, you have to be part of the experience of the carbon. Okay. Just share with you a couple of insights before we go to Zohar. So, there's a tradition. I know that I, I did this when I was a small child. My father started learning with me Chumash. There's a tradition that is kept in many communities today that when children start to learn Chumash, they actually learn Vayikra first. And it's based on a Medrash. Now, it's an interesting educational decision because the book of Vayikra is extremely difficult. So I think what happens is um, they learn a few psukim of Vayikra, if I remember correctly, that's what I did, and then go back to Bereshis. Okay. So the Medrash says, the Yalkut says, why is it that we learn Chumash with children, Dafka from Parshas Vayikra, says the Yalkut, because this Parsha talks about Karbonis. Karbonis is a symbol of purity. Everything involved in the Karbon had to be pure. The animal had to be pure. The Kohen had to be pure. The owner had to be pure, and so on and so forth. Um, that's, so therefore it's a parsha of purity. Said the Medrash, we know that Tinoike Shobes Rabban, young children, are also pure. They are free of sin, free of impurity. And therefore the Medrash says, let the pure ones come and learn the parsha of purity. Right? That's why the tradition is there. The Kliyokra says something interesting. The Kliyokra says, that's also why the Aleph of Ayikra is small. To tell us, that this is the parsha you begin to teach small children. By the way, the simple reason or the explanation that's always given why the Aleph is small is because Moshe Rabbeinu was in- incredibly humble and he didn't want to put Vayikra, which is, as we said, as an expression of endearment and preciousness, but he rather wanted to actually put Vayikra. Of course, he couldn't change the letters of the Torah, so he made the Aleph small, so it looks like Vayikra. Okay. But there's many, many different ideas behind the small Aleph. The Kliyakra says, it's to hint to us that we should teach small children this Pasha, because the Aleph is small, so it's a symbol of small children, and this is the Pasha that we begin with. 
Other Svarim say a little bit differently. Other Svarim say that the reason that the Aleph is small is to teach us. Aleph comes from the word Aalefcha, to teach, to learn. Right? So we know that one of the prerequisites to learning Torah and understanding Torah and absorbing Torah is humility. That's why Vayikra has a small Aleph to teach us that when it comes to Aalefcha, when it comes to an Aleph, when it comes to teaching and learning, the critical component is the small aleph, is to be humble. Which is why Moshe Rabbeinu was Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was the ultimate humility. He was the most humble person on earth. He was, as the Pirka Ovis says, he was the epitome of someone who's bayreach min hakovod. He flees away, he runs away from glory and honor, which is why he didn't want to become Moshe Rabbeinu to begin with. And that's why he was the person that could actually give us the Torah. You know, it's interesting. There's a medrash, there's a medrash, there's a, there's a Pirkovus, I think it is also, where it says that, everyone who runs, any person who pursues honor or pursues authority, the authority or the honor will run away from him. Anyone who runs away from covet, anyone who runs away from honor, Honor will pursue him. So they tell a story of Rabbi Simcha Bunim of, of Pshischa, the Pshischa Rebbe. Someone came to him and said, Rebbe, I have a problem with this Pirkavis. I am always running away from honor. Right? And nevertheless, the honor doesn't pursue me. Why? So Rabbi Simcha Bunim told him, from your question, I can tell what the answer is. Because when you run away from honor, you turn around to see if the honor is pursuing you. If you turn around to see if the honor is pursuing you, you're not really someone who can be considered a bereach min hakoved, someone who really runs away from honor and authority. Okay. That's a little bit about the beginning of Prashto Ikra and, and how it all works. Let's go to Purim and Parsha Zohar, and then we'll come back to Parsha Vikra at the end. So this week is Parsha Zohar. Let's just, let's just define what Parsha Zohar is. So Parsha Zohar is a little Parsha in Parsha's Kiseitze in Dvarim, where the Torah says, Zohar is in Shabbos Lakatre. I'm just going to, here we are. Sorry, not Shabbos, sorry, Amalek, I mean. Number four, the Torah says, Zohar. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you were leaving Egypt. Um, he met you on the way, he chanced upon you on the way. That's a simple shot. He weakened all those that were weak. You were tired, you were not particularly God fearing at that time. And you, have to, you have to remember that that was the first war. Jewish people had as a nation and that was a terrible thing and it was considered a terrible thing that Amalek <coughs> actually attacked the Jewish nation. Then the Torah says in the same Prasha which we read the Shabbos as Maftir when Hashem allows you to, to be detached from all your enemies in Eretz Yisrael in the land that Hashem will give you as an inheritance when you finish conquering the land in other words you shall wipe out the memory of Amalek, which actually includes the war, includes the commandment to fight Amalek and eradicate them, from underneath the heavens, 
the heavenly lois tishkach, do not forget. So we learn from there that there's a mitzvah to remember. Now, the mitzvah to remember can be the, the Gemara tells us, Chazal tells us like this. So, how do we know we have to verbalize? How do we know we have to talk about it? So, the Gemara says, Zohar, when you remember something, that ne- not necessarily means you talk about it. That could just mean you remember it in your heart, right? However, the Pasuk already says at the end, Loi Tishchach, do not forget. If it commands us not to forget, that means that we're, not gonna, we're remembering it, right? So why is the extra word Zohar to remember? From there we learn you actually have to read it in the Torah and you have to remember it in, um, in, uh, in a way that you verbalize it, right? Now, when do we have to read about Amalek? So the truth is it can be done anytime. The real mitzvah halachically is to do it once a year. Because we say we forget things after a whole year. However, the Chachamim instituted that it should be done on the Shabbos before Purim. Being that Hamolek has to do with Purim. Haman came from Hamolek. That was the story of Shaul HaMelech. That actually Shaul HaMelech, when they conquered all the wars. So therefore, what happened was Shaul HaMelech was going to fight the war against Hamolek. Shmuel HaNavi told him to fight and eradicate Hamolek. He left the king alive and some of the animals alive. The, the Agag Melech, the, um, his name was Agag, yeah, Agag, the, the, the king of Amalek at the time, he that night lived with another woman and, and who conceived, and therefore he had children, and Amalek is still here. So that was a big problem. But as a result of that, which we're going to talk about next week, actually a fascinating idea, next week we'll have a shir just on Purim. As a result of that, Haman was there, Haman came from Amalek, and therefore we have Purim because of that. So therefore, and then the Torah, the Megillah tells us we should perform the mitzvahs and observe the mitzvahs of Purim. The expression that is used in the Megillah's Esther is these days, meaning the days of Purim, nizkarim v'naasim, shall be remembered and observed. Therefore, says the Gemara, in that order, you have to remember them and then observe them. How do we remember it? We remember Amalek by reading Parshas Amalek on the Shabbos before. Subsequent to that, we observe Amalek, so to speak, we observe Purim, and we do the mitzvahs of Purim. That's the, that's the, um, the just of it. Okay. The Mogen Avram, the great halachic commentator on Shulchan Aruch, asks the question, he says like this, there are many mitzvahs, there are many times the Torah tells us to remember. We have to remember the giving of the Torah, we have to remember um, the Egel Azor, we have to remember the the Loshon Horror that Miriam spoke about. In fact, in some Sidurim, there's something called Sheish Zechiroi. Six, six things you're supposed to remember, which some people recite every single day. If you give me one second, I'll tell you what they are. I'll tell you what they are. One second. You have to remember the going out of Mitzrayim. You have to make sure you don't forget Matan Torah. You have to remember Amalek, which is what we do the Shabbos. You have to remember when Hashem got angry with us because of the Egel Hazor. You have to remember the Lashon Hore that Miriam spoke when they came against Moshe Rabbeinu, what Hashem did to her. And you have to remember the day of Shabbos. Right. So the Morgan of Rome asks the question, there are many mitzvahs to remember. And yet we don't find... right? That everything we have to remember, there's a special parsha in the Torah that we have to read. In fact, on a regular Shabbos, where we commanded to remember Shabbos, we don't read 
parsha about Shabbos, we just read the parsha of the week. Right? So, why don't we have with other remembrances a mitzvah to remember just like we have to remember Amalek? Right? That's the question the Morgan Avram asks. On a halachic level, he answers the following. He says, because Matan Torah, we don't need to read in the Torah. We have a Yontif. We have Shavuos. Shabbos, I guess we have Shabbos. And we observe Shabbos. The Miriam thing, going out of Mitzrayim, we have Pesach. The Miriam thing and the Egel Azov thing, they didn't institute that we should have a special Pasha to remember because it's to the detriment of the Jewish people. It's something we have to remember, but it's something that highlights the weaknesses in Am Yisrael. They served the Egel Azov, Miriam spoke Lashon Hara, and so on. And therefore we don't have a special Parsha to lay him because of it. So that's the answer the Morgan Avram gives. However, some of the Mepharshim raised the issue. It's interesting because you can say the same thing about Purim. We have a Yontif uh, about Amalek. We have a Yontif to, to remember Amalek. It's called Purim. Very much part of the theme of Purim is remembering Amalek. Because Haman embodied Amalek. He represented what Amalek was all about. So it still doesn't exactly explain why there's such a special concept of reading in the Torah the Parsha to do with this particular aspect that we need to remember. So we need to conclude that it's not so simple. Almost what the Moggad Avram is providing us is with the halachic answer, but it seems to be there's something deeper behind it as well. And it seems to be that there's something extremely fundamental about a Molech which is why there's such an importance attached to it to remember it. So we need to understand what is fundamental about Amalek. Why is it so fundamentally different to all the other things we have to remember? Where on the surface it actually seems the opposite way around. Shabbos, we know, is fundamental. It's a Munah. Pesach is when we became a nation. Matan Torah, or we became out of Egypt. Matan Torah is when we became a nation. They seem much more fundamental than Amalek is. So what's the idea of Amalek? Number one. Number two... Why do we need to remember Amalek nowadays anyways? We know that the connection between Amalek, there's actually two mitzvahs here, right? One is to remember what Amalek did. The other is to wipe out Amalek, to destroy Amalek. To the point that there are some Rishonim that learn there's really one mitzvah. And because of that, there are some people that learn that that's why women don't have to come to Parsha Zachar. It's a whole machlekes. If this Shabbos women are mechuyev, are obligated to listen to this parsha, and I mean most most poskim say yes, that's why they make an effort to come. But there's a there's a question on it because we know the time of the the, the base of Mikdash when the people went to fight a war, women did not go. So the mitzvah of fighting Amalek and destroying Amalek is not upon women, and therefore they don't have to remember it either. So why we know nowadays we actually can't fulfill the mitzvah of destroying Amalek because we actually don't know who Amalek is. I mean, there are a couple of good candidates around the world, but we don't know who Amalek is. We have a principle, a halachic principle. I mean, we can say philosophically, many of them represent Amalek, but we, we have a philosoph- we have halachic principle that after Sancheirev came in the time of the first Pesach Mikdash and mixed up the world, he, he took people in one country, put them in another country, and so on and so forth, just to mix up everyone, divide and conquer the strategy kind of thing. Since that happened... We actually don't know who belongs to which nations, and therefore the halachas, 
that apply in the Torah to Egyptians and to Moabites and to this, that, and the other. Actually, we don't keep because we don't know who they are, and therefore we rely that they come from the most of the world, and therefore they're not every individual. We'd assume they're not from these countries. Okay. And yet, and yet, yet nevertheless, it seems like there's still a mitzvah to have Pasha Zohar. There's still a mitzvah to listen to the passage of Amalek. And there's still a mitzvah to remember Amalek. Why? Why do we have that emphasis? And in fact, there's a, a mitzvah to remember Amalek in such a way, which is a greater emphasis. We don't have a thing that before Pesach, you have to take out a Torah and read about going out of Egypt. No. Only Amalek has a special way of doing it. We have to read in the Torah to remember Amalek. First of all, why do we have to read in the Torah? We can just remember it. Why reading in the Torah specifically? And especially, it doesn't seem to be such a fundamental idea. And it's not something that we can do nowadays. So the obvious answer to this is, especially by seeing some of the poskim that actually divide the two mitzvahs. It says there's two mitzvahs. One mitzvah is to remember Amalek, one mitzvah is to fight Amalek. Two different mitzvahs. Nowadays we cannot fight Amalek, but we can still remember Amalek. So obviously it must mean that Amalek represents spiritually something very fundamental. That yes, we don't know who Amalek is physically today, but we do know what Amalek is, spiritually speaking, the Amalek within us, and therefore we have to remember Amalek, be conscious of it, make sure we understand what the Amalek is, and make sure to destroy it. Not to destroy the nation of Amalek, but to destroy the Amalek within us. And that actually fits well, because the truth is, if you break it up like that, we find an interesting phenomenon. The mitzvah of wiping out Amalek, of actually destroying Amalek through a war, that's a mitzvah which is on the community. It's not an individual mitzvah. No, no individual person has a mitzvah to go wipe out Amalek. It's a, it, some say it's a mitzvah on the king, a mitzvah on the community, on the base team, whatever the case is. But remembering Amalek, that's a mitzvah on the individual. Which makes sense because the individual has to remember what Amalek is because the individual has to deal with the private Amalek, the internal Amalek, the spiritual Amalek. So what is the spiritual Amalek? So let me share with you an idea, which of course is discussed often. The spiritual Amalek goes like this. We know that Amalek represents arrogance, terrible arrogance. Ego. Amalek represents skepticism. The gematria of Amalek is sophic, always instilling a doubt. Amalek represents apathy. Amalek represents many things and all of them come from one fundamental problem, the problem of ego. Right? That is why, spiritually speaking, we understand why Amalek has to be destroyed. You know, we have seven middos, we have seven types of emotions. Sometimes they're good emotions, sometimes they're bad. We don't have, we don't have like there were seven nations in, 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 the, in the land of Israel, right? All the seven middos that we have, if they're bad, they can be channeled into something good. Amalek has to be eradicated, Amalek is not good, Amalek is the source of evil. It's what drives the evil expression of the other middos. So lots said about Amalek, and Amalek is fundamentally, it's chutzpah, it's arrogance, it's just gaiva, it's egocentricity. We find in Svarim, one of the descriptions of Amalek is the following phrase. The phrase is, I should have put it on the hand, and I didn't. Let's make sure I do. No, I didn't. The phrase is, Yoidea esri boinoi, 
Amalek is a negative force that recognizes, knows your dea, has insight into his master, meaning God, and nevertheless, he intentionally rebels against it. In other words, there are sometimes manifestations of evil which are unintentional to some degree. Sometimes people do an evil thing because they're just not aware. They don't have the insight. They haven't thought it through. If they would understand the severity or the negativity or the toxicity of what they're doing, they wouldn't do it, perhaps. To know something is, 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 is bad and to do it, or to know something that's good and to ignore it, that's the height of arrogance. Amalek represents the idea of Yodeya Esri Boinoi. Amalek knows his master, Amalek recognizes Hashem, and rebels against Hashem. The height of ego, the height of arrogance. Now, the obvious question is, that's really good, right? And that's certainly a fundamental problem, not just a, a, an expression of a detailed problem, but of a detail of a problem in terms of serving Hashem, it's a fundamental problem. Which is, by the way, the reason that we have to get rid of that, in other words, whatever we know Hashem, which obviously should serve Hashem, and the way we get rid of the Amalek is by reading in the Torah. We read a partial of the Torah. Not just remember, say, I remember. No, it's not good enough. When we read a portion of the Torah, the Torah is like shapes the reality of the world. And therefore the Torah has the power to really shape us in such a way where we get rid of the internal Amalek, the ego, the chutzpah, the, 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 the uh, audacity, so to speak, of Amalek, that Yodeya is Shibayna, that he knows Hashem, whom he's and limerid boy, and he still rebels. The other question is, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty heavy charge. Right? Certainly, we don't fall into that category. What would, what would happen? What is that Amalek within us then? Certainly, we don't fall into the category of someone who knows Hashem and intentionally rebels against Hashem. Hopefully, we're talking about we are people that we try and learn, we try and grow. We know about something, we try and implement it and apply it. What does it mean? It can't be on the extreme level that we just rebel against Hashem even though we know Hashem exists, we have a Munah. Maybe we make mistakes here and there, but we, what does that mean? And, and what's that Amalek drive within us? When last did we have that aspiration just to rebel against Hashem no matter what? Even though we know who He is and we know how great He is, right? So what is that, what is that Amalek in us? So let's, let's just look at something. We know that Amalek is talked about twice in the Chumash. The second time is what we read the Shabbos, Zohar, Amalek. The first time ever is in Parshas Beshalach. In fact, it's the Kriya Satoira of Purim morning. It comes from the end of Parshas Beshalach where when the story is told how the Yidin came out of Mitzrayim, Amalek attacked them. And Hashem told Yehoshua, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu to tell Yehoshua to go mobilize an army and go fight them, and they did. And that's when Hashem swore that ultimately Amalek would have to be eradicated. So let's have a look at the Psukim. Number five is the last two Psukim of Bashalach. It says, Vayiven Moshe Mizbech. Moshe Rabbeinu built a Mizbech. Vayikra Shmoi Hashem Nisi. And he called the name Hashem Nisi, which means he, he said that Hashem had performed an unbelievable miracle here. The next Psukim says, Vayoymer, and he said, Ki yod al kes ko. 
Listen carefully to this now. The hand of Hashem is on his throne. Case comes from the word kisei. Yudke ka is Hashem's name. Hashem's hand is on the throne, his own throne. Milchama la Hashem. Because he's going to fight a war against for Hashem. But Amalek against Amalek. Midor dor from every generation. Always Hashem, after the story of the Amalek, Hashem, so to speak, put his hand, whatever that means, on the holy throne of Hashem, case ka, and swore that it will be an ongoing war with Amalek from generation to generation until he gets completely eradicated, which will happen when Mashiach comes. So Chazal tell us, what's this expression, Yod, if you have a look at symbol there, al case ka. The word for chair is kisei, like we call it the kisei hakover, the throne of glory. Normally when we have Hashem's name in the Chumash, it's not only Yud and Hey, it's Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey. So what's his name? Yudke, right? Only, only Yud and Hey. So Chazal tell us, that ain Hashem Sholem, Hashem's name is not complete. Nor is his chair complete until Amalek is wiped out. And that's how when Hashem takes an oath that they're going to fight against Amalek, it's case, not kisei. It's yud and hey, and not yud and hey, and vav and hey. Okay. What does that mean? What does that mean? So, in Kabbalah it says... That the Yud and the Hay, the Vav and the Hay of Hashem's holy name represents the journey of the ten powers that we have in our soul. How so? Um, the Yud and the Hay is Chochmah and Bina. We've talked about this before. When a person has Chochmah, that's the kernel, the seed of an intellectual idea, and then he builds it into a big intellectual edifice, which is the idea, and broadens it a bit, that's called bina. Bina comes from the word binyan, which is to build. In letters of the Aleph base, Yud, which is the smallest letter, represents Chochmah, the kernel of truth, the idea, the essential idea, and the first hey of Hashem's name presents the broadening out of those truths to really understand them and to, and to internalize them intellectually properly. Right? That's Yud and Hay. Vav, what's the Vav? Vav is the six Midas. Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes, Netzach, Sex emotional responses. And the final Hay is the seventh, which is Malchus. Because Malchus is the feminine letter. Malchus is feminine. It, it takes the other six emotions and applies them and broadens them. And that's why Hay is also the concept of behavior, thought, speech, and so on and so forth. So what's Amalek? Amalek is separating between the first of Hashem's name and the second letters of and the second set of letters of Hashem's name, which is why we are taught that the name of Hashem is not complete until there's a war with Amalek. What does that mean? Amalek only wants the Yud and the He. Amalek was a smart guy. The idea of Amalek, the drive of Amalek, is Yodeya Esri Boynoi. He knows his master. He's learned. He's made a siyum, he's, made a, he's learned a mesechta, a gemara, he's learned philosophy, he's learned maral, he's learned chumash, uh, Hasidic for him, whatever, he's learned. And yet, it doesn't connect to the vav and the hay. It doesn't, it's not internalized, it's not part of the emotions, it's not part of the behavior. 
In other words, that's the arrogance of a Amalek on this level. It's a subtle arrogance. That I know what I'm supposed to do, but there's cognitive dissonance. I know the Yud, and I know the hey, Yodea, Shiboina, and yet, Mechavalimurboi. There's not one, he wants to rebel against Hashem. Why? Because a person can learn, a person can understand, but if you don't have, if you don't have the surrender to Hashem, if you don't have the Kabbalah's oil, if you don't have the obedience to Hashem, it won't come down into action. And that's what Amalek is. Amalek, one of the ideas of Amalek. One of the ideas of Amalek is, Amalek is this idea of knowing and yet not implementing. Knowing and not being committed to action. Knowing and then not following through to feelings and action and behavior. Right? In other words, what's the opposite of arrogance? Bittle, surrender, subservience, self-negation. That doesn't go well with Amalek. When you have bitul, when you have self-negation, when you have subservience and surrender, you end up doing what Hashem wants you to do. If you've learned before, it inspires greater observance, deeper observance, more gishmak observance. But observance you do because Hashem said so. If you leave it to Amalek, Amalek is arrogance. The total opposite of Hashem. But he's a clever guy, he's a clever intellectual. So he learns, he understands... He's got no problem with that, but he says, just don't bring it down to action. Don't serve Hashem with this. Right? So that's, that's, what Amalek, that's what Amalek is. And we all have a little bit of Amalek. We all have things we know, and yet we don't put it into action. We all have things we know, we go to a shir, we listen, but then we don't apply it. We all have that. Maybe we intended to apply it. Maybe we want to take it further, but we don't. Why? Because we have that nefesh abamash, we have that animal soul with us. And therefore there's, there's this concept of we have to remember Amalek. We have to remember the voice that inside us that is Yodeya Esri Boinoi. He knows his master and yet still rebels. Meaning what rebels mean, intentionally rebel means doesn't bring it down to action, not, not committed, doesn't surrender to Hashem's will. And that's why it's such an important fundamental idea. That's why every year on, on the Shabbos for Purim, we read that Pasha in the Torah because we connect the Torah and the Torah is the expression of Hashem's will and therefore the Torah that we lead in the Sefer Torah becomes the conduit, becomes the power behind eradicating Aramolek, especially at this level, making sure that everything that we learn, eventually we internalize it and becomes part of who we are and then we try to behave that way or act on it. So that's, that's a bit about Pasha Aramolek. But I want to go back to the Pasha and also talk about Purim. So we have an idea that goes like this. Let's go back to the Pasha for a minute. The beginning of the Pasha I pointed out is by Yikra El Moshe. Hashem called Moshe. He waited for him. He, he, he called out to him. And we said by Yikra, as Rashi says, it's an expression of endearment. It's an expression of preciousness. In fact, the Mepharshim explained it's even more than calling someone's name. In other words, it's, it's, it doesn't say, when it says, Moshe, and he called Moshe, it doesn't say who called Moshe. It doesn't even say Hashem's name here. And the reason is because the bond expressed by the endearment of Hashem calling Moshe is deeper than Hashem's name. Name is limiting, name is descriptive. Vayikral Moshe is an expression of deep love between Hashem and Moshe Rabbeinu. Deep love between the Yid and Hashem. Deep love, deep bond, a very, very deep connection that just doesn't even have a name of who calls it, just so deep and one. That concept of complete oneness. That's the beginning of the Parsha. What's the end of the Parsha? 
The end of the Pasha is a Pasha where Hashem tells us all sorts of karbonas, all sorts of sacrifices for doing wrong things, for doing Averis. Individual Averis, based in Averis, etc., etc. How does the whole Pasha end? Have a look at number three. The Chippur Olav it talks about a certain kind of carbon that says, which was from a very severe Avera, and if Hashem will atone for the, in front of the coin, if Hashem before God, you'll be forgiven, because you do one of these terrible things, to rebel, to be guilty of, and, and that's it, then the Pasha ends. Very, very big difference. Now we have a principle we've discussed many times, that when you have the name of a Pasha, the name of anything encapsulates its entire essence. So how on earth does the word Vayikra, which is an expression of deep love between Hashem and Moshe Rabbeinu, how does it expression the, the transgression that is going on at the end of the parsha? So I'm going to share with you something that the Rebbe once explained on a Purim. And, uh, and it's a very beautiful idea. We know that on Purim, if you go back, if you, we're going to go now to Purim and then come back to the parsha. Oh, here we go. Have a look at number six. Famous Gemara. Amar Rava Rava says, Mechayev inish bepuria. A person is supposed to be so happy in Purim to the point of becoming intoxicated. yada until he doesn't know the difference between Oror Homon, between cursed be Homon, Uboruch Mardchai, and blessed be Mardchai. Right. Famous idea. Okay, I'm not recommending everyone gets completely smashed. I'm just saying that there's a tremendous simcha on Purim and the expression is, until you don't know the difference between Homan and Mordechai, so, and it means when people do this, they're actually quite gone, they're quite advanced in their, in their inebriation, right? Now, the Mephoshim will battle with this, so to speak. What exactly does it mean? Does it mean everyone has to go completely drunk? No. All kinds of Mephoshim. And one of the explanations is given is this. That it means you should get a little bit tipsy so you find it hard to make mathematical calculations, right? Now we know, interesting thing, Arur Homon, cursed be Homon, has the gematria of 502. Baruch Mordechai, right? Meshaburu brings us down, I think. Baruch Mordechai, blessed be Mordechai, has the same gematria, 502. So therefore they explain, what does it mean a person has to do? What does it mean that a person has to drink so he has no difference? It means a person just drinks more than he's used to, so he gets a bit drowsy, a bit, a bit uh, hazy, and therefore he's unable to make these calculations. Just he can't make, he doesn't have a calculation, he can't start adding up the thing. So, until he doesn't know what's between Baruch Mardachai and Arham. He doesn't know the calculations, he doesn't know how to work them out. No, that's not completely drunk, that's just a little bit, a little bit under the weather. Okay. But really, we have to know, it's not so simple this. If Baruch, if in fact, Arur Haman, cursed be Haman, and Baruch Mardachai have the same gematria, that means there's a connection between them, which is very strange because one would imagine there cannot be anything further in, in between than Baruch Mardachai and Arur Haman. Mardachai was a tzaddik and he was blessed. Haman was a rasha and he was cursed. We say Arur Haman. Right? We say Baruch Mardachai. One was a Yid, one was a Talmud Chacham, part of the Sanhedrin, on a very high level. The other one was a Islamic Prime Minister running around doing strange things. Yeah. And even philosophically, the one is good and the one is evil. Baruch Mardachai is good, Baruch Haman is evil. How can they be the same gematria? And if, hal- I mean, we can make a gematria about anything. It doesn't necessarily mean much. But when Halacha tells us, when Torah tells us about the significance of gematria, it means it means something. 
That means there's something that's similar, something that Arur Haman and Baruch Mordechai share. How can that be? What on earth do they share? So let me explain the following idea. That we know the power of tshuva, right? So in other words like this, there's a, per, a, a part of a person's life where they just live normally. They live according to the Shulchan according to the Ratzon Hashem. They eat kosher, they keep Shabbos, they do all the mitzvahs and so on and so forth. Right? We know that when we engage in the physical world, we're able to elevate the world. When we eat a piece of uh, uh, herring, we're able to elevate it. Or a piece of challah, right? If we eat it right, if we eat it right correctly. If we eat a piece of meat, we're able to elevate it. If we go for a walk, we're able to Whatever we do physically, we're able to elevate it. Unless it's not kosher. Unless it's not allowed. The things in the Torah where Hashem says this is not allowed is really Hashem telling us you need to stay off limits because this comes from complete bad. We have this concept in Tanya where it talks about some things in the world are... We, the world is full of, full of clipper. It means like a skin. There's a concealment of Hashem. Right? In everything in the world. That's why the world is called the world. Because the world in Hebrew means oilam. World, olam. Which comes from the word l'ha'alim, to hide. So everything in this world comes from the hiddenness of Hashem. But there's different layers. So there's certain things that are more neutral, like eating and sleeping and, and, and business and these kind of things, which don't automatically represent Hashem, but we can make them. So we can use them, we can go out, we can work with them. Then there are things in the world that we cannot. Hashem tells us, don't eat that animal. You know why? Because you can't elevate it. It's too low. Mashiach comes, different story. But for now, don't, don't, don't go there. Because you can't elevate it. Because it's complete bad. Complete bad means complete, it's completely concealing of Hashem's presence. Says the Rebbe that Baruch Mordechai represents Kedusha. Arur Haman, Arur Haman means the things in the world that are cursed, bad, evil. So what are they doing with the same gematria? The answer is like this. That a person, if they live normally according to the will of Hashem, there are certain parts of the world that we just cannot elevate. So we don't do anything with it. We don't eat with it. We don't sleep with it. We don't do anything with it. And when are they going to be elevated? Or how, let's say, take a piece, something that's trafe, or a piece of a Zara. We know in Pirkei Ovis that says that whatever Hashem created, He created for His glory, which means everything in the world has a mission, has a purpose. So the question is, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of a Zara? What's the purpose of a trafe animal? What's the purpose of something that is wrong, that exists? The purpose is that it can, yes, experience some elevation through the process of tshuva. Tshuva. This is the famous idea that the Gemara says that a Baal Tshuva is greater than a Tzaddik. Why? Because a Baal Tshuva is someone that can elevate through the process of Tshuva even that which is completely evil. How so? So it's not the Avera itself that is elevated because Avera is complete bad. Avera is against Hashem's will. It means like this, that everything in this world, every single thing in this world has a divine energy, a force that, that is divine. As we call it in Kabbalah, a Nitzutz Eloki. Even the worst of the worst, even Haman, has a nitzutz, has a spark. Everything that exists, a traif meat, a vodizara, that wouldn't exist if they didn't have a spark of godliness in them. But that spark is completely hidden. Right? What happens with that spark is it becomes elevated through the process of tshuva. We've explained this once before, but the, the idea is when a person suddenly realizes they've been distant from Hashem, 
And what's to do tshuva? Tshuva is an expression of yearning to Hashem with a very deep love. To reconnect with Hashem. We are taught that about tshuva can develop a love for Hashem that is greater than a tzaddik. For a tzaddik everything is going fine. He loves Hashem but it's all normal. There's a depth of yearning. There's a depth of crying out. There's a depth of connection that comes with a person that does tshuva. Which is powered by the very fact that he was doing bad and he feels so distant from Hashem. Therefore he does tshuva and he cries out Hashem from the depths of the heart. Which is driven by the things he did wrong when, he's, when, they, when this new love, newfound love of Hashem, deep connection with Hashem, is driven by the things we're supposed to stay away from. The nitzutz, the spark in those trefer things are elevated. And as the Gemara says, when a person does tshuva me'ava, even the transgressions turn to mitzvahs. And this is what the Gemara is saying. Arur Haman and Baruch Mordechai have the same gematria. Same gematria. Uh, how can you say the same gematria? They're totally opposites. One's good, one's bad. One's holy, one's evil. No. Even the evil can become elevated. Even the evil can transform. And therefore, if one does a proper tshuva, one can completely transform even things which are evil. How does that happen? How does tshuva happen? Tshuva happens through a very deep, supra-rational yearning to Hashem and surrender to Hashem. That's real tshuva. We talk about the Ranyam Kippur, we talk about Ampurim. Giving yourself over to Hashem completely. Makes sense, doesn't make sense. Revealing the very deep connection we have with Hashem that is so great. That is so great, that is unbreakable. Because what actually happens when we do tshuva? How come Hashem forgives us? How come Hashem allows us to transform the bad into good? The reason is because we go to such a strong point of connection between us and Hashem that at that point Hashem... He's so one with us that he's able to forgive us. And he's able to let us transform even the bad. That's not a logical thing. On the contrary, logic dictates when you do something wrong, there's no tshuva. You messed up, it's broken. Tshuva means that we, we reveal an illogical, super rational bond between us and Hashem that is, un, that is unbelievably connected. And it goes to the very, it reveals the very depth of the yid reaching the very depth of Hashem, so to speak. And on that level, it's like an unbreakable bond between father and child that allows us even to be forgiven for those things we did wrong, even if they were very bad, and to transform the, the good into evil. Into the, the evil into good, sorry. Now let's reread the sentence. Amar Rav, that's number six. A person, I'm going to put the commas in a different place and translate it a bit differently. A person has to become so happy and Purim. What type of happiness does it be? We know Purim is not a fun day, it's not just a day, it's a very serious day. Very simcha dikha day, but it's, very, it's a very deep day. So a person has to become so besimcha on Purim, what's the measurement until, how does he express the simcha? Adelo yada, period. Adelo yada, until he reaches the level of lo yada. What does lo yada mean? He doesn't know. He submits his logic to Hashem. He's completely given over, he's in a place of irrationality, good irrationality. He's in a place of connection with Hashem between the Yid and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which is higher than intellect, higher than logic, higher than rationale. 
And that's the Simcha of Purim. Purim is such a powerful day that we can bring the Simcha to express the Lo Yada. Not the Yada, but the Lo Yada. The not knowing, the submission of, 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 of thinking. The complete surrender to Hashem, the complete bittul, the exact opposite of Amalek. Amalek is arrogance. Amalek says you can, you can stand up to Hashem, God forbid. Purim is the day we express the exact opposite, total loving connection with Hashem at the very deepest level, which is what we call lo yada. You don't know that connection. It's higher than logic, higher than the rationale. And when you reach the lo yada, when you do tshuva lo yada, then, then, then there's no difference between or haman and baruch marchai. Then there's no difference between or haman and baruch marchai. They're the same gematria, which means they're the same because they're now both transformed. Baruch Marcha is always good. Arahaman is the bad which is turned into good. And that's the meaning of this Pasuk. What's it going to do with Vayikra? So the Rebbe asked the question like this. Well, we know the name of the Parsha. The name of everything encapsulates everything. Vayikra, the word Vayikra as the name of the Parsha is, represents an amazing love between Hashem and the Jew. Like Rashi says, Loshen Chiba, it's an expression of endearment. So in other words, when we're at the Vayikra Pasuk, there's this love between Jew and God. When we get to the end of the Pasha, suddenly there's Averis. Transgression, rebellion, sin offerings, excuse me, sin offerings, and all the rest of it. What's the connection between the two? So he says that's the connection. Because Vayikra is that expression of endearment between us and Hashem. It's like the law yada. It also represents the bond between us and Hashem. It's like the expression of that deep love. When we have Vayikra, when we have that deep bond between Hashem and the Jewish people, just like when we have lo yada on Purim, then we can have the last Pasuk over here that we can transform even things which are real transgressions. Even things which are really negative and really bad can be transformed through that carbon, through the tshuva that came with the carbon. And that's the connection between... So what we learned here is a new pshat, a new idea of Ad de Yada. And it's connected to Purim because it connects the two end psukim in this week's Pasha because, because Vayikral Moshe is that love and that love is revealed and even the end, even the negativity can be transformed to good. Okay, we'll stop there. Why don't you stop? Oh, there we are. That's better.